The Jericho Network on Westwood One. The following program is presented by the Jericho Network in association with Podcast One. Podcast One presents Rock Talk, Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. All the rockers, all the stories. This is incredible. Now, now, here's your host, respected rock journalist, Mitch LaFawn. Welcome to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. Joining me this week from the River Dogs and also Def Leppard, it is guitarist Vivian Campbell. I have a new album called California. And on the other side, I have got Josh from the Red Hot Chili Peppers talking about Dot Hacker, his band, and of course the band's new album, or the album that came out last year, The Getaway, and we also talk about Chris Cornell. But before that, I have got a great friend and a great guest uh, from the TalkingMetal.com website, Mr. Mark Striegel. Good day, Mark. Hey, Mitch. How are you? Good, good, good. Nice to have you on 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 Rock Talk because uh, yeah, there, honored a, to be here. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's there's a couple of things that have come up in the news uh, that have you know piqued my interest. In Canada, there's a new record store called um, Sunrise Records, and they've been posting all kinds of record sales, and they're opening a whole bunch of stuff. But I want to get to you about this thing that came out on the CBC, which is the Canadian Broadcasting uh, Corporation, right. uh, CBC Radio, and they said that. If you want to keep the local music scene alive, uh, meaning, you know, bar shows and stuff, you need to get shows to start earlier. And they're even suggesting that maybe not passing a law, but we should look at other countries like uh, Japan and stuff where they start shows super early so that you can get home and get to bed by 11 o'clock. Now, what is your take on these late bar show stars because I, I it is my pet peeve it just drives me absolutely crazy yeah and and you know clubs have lost business from me because where i live here in new jersey i'm not going to name any names but there are certain clubs that are just notorious for this and i won't buy a ticket to go see a show there unless it's a personal friend or something that's playing there and i just have to show up and and even then it it it, it just drives me nuts i recently was at a bar waiting to the wee hours of the of the morning for enough's enough to come on and i can tell you the guys in the band were were upset that they were being pushed back so late but the the line i always get from the promoters and and the club owners oh is oh we have to we have to sell alcohol we have to this is how we i we make our money at the at the bar so you know it 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 just it seems crazy to me especially when you have a babysitter at home i mean you're not going to have a 14 year old babysitter stay till 3 a.m. on a thursday night you know when she has school the next day i i find it inconsiderate and i, I am 100% for a anything. law or <laughs> anything or a, a, anything yeah or just and, common sense i mean you know you, you, i would split it this way listen in, in quebec here we're allowed to kids are allowed to drink at 18 in the states but if your band is coming in and it's aimed at an 18 to 24 year old crowd okay maybe start a show at 10 or 10 30 that'll go till midnight maybe but especially at our age, when you're booking bands like Enough's Enough and Quiet Riot and Skid right. Row, and you know that fan base is not 18 years old. That fan base is definitely 35 and over, or at least mostly 35 and over. We have jobs that start at 9 in the morning. We have uh, kids that need babysitting, or even if they don't, you know, they have school in the morning. We have to get up, get you know, get. 
to say to me that I'm going to go see whatever band on a Wednesday night and I'm not going to get to bed till two or three, well, you know what? I'm, yeah. I'm not going to go. And, and especially in Canada where our winters are, are rough, it's like, no, listen, it's minus 30 degrees Celsius in January. It's a Tuesday. Uh, no, I'm not going to stay at your bar until two in the morning. And it, it drives me nuts. And I've never understood that because you and me have that same outlook where we just won't go. And so you've got 50 people not showing up, 100 people not showing up. So you've got this club that has 300 people and only 50 people show up. And now they're hanging on for beer sales and beer sales and beer sales. But you know what? If they started the first band at 7 and they had the main act on at 9 like they do at an arena, yeah, you probably would have 150 people in the bar. And th- that would probably make up for the, the lost beers. It, 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 it's remarkably silly that yeah. they do it this way. And um, honestly, as, as a consumer, I am willing to pay more for my ticket price knowing that a band is going to go on at a decent hour and I mean, if that helps make up for beer sales, I, I'm all for it. I will. I would definitely pay ten, fifteen dollars more for a ticket to go see a show that I know is going to start at a decent hour, and I know is going to get me home at a decent hour. And and I think it's really important, especially like you mentioned with these older bands, that that this start that they start insisting to go on earlier and charge more for a ticket. Again, I'll pay more. Yeah, and see, I'm not even sure. I mean, paying more if I have to, but, you know, when you see a show at Madison Square Garden or in Montreal at the Bell Center, you know that by 10.45, you're done and you're on your way home. So I will go, like tomorrow, for example, we've got Nickelback in Montreal. I might go because it doesn't matter. Uh, You know, by, by, you know, the half hour drive home by 11.15, 11.20, I'm at home. I can watch TV, I can go to bed, and if I have to get a babysitter, she can get home at a reasonable hour for a babysitter. Um, And it motivates me to want to go, but there's so many shows that I have missed this spring that have been on a Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, that I know that the bar is going to... Like, there's bars in Montreal, and I won't start naming names, but I I refuse to go to the shows there. I just absolutely refuse, because I know and I'm thinking of one bar in particular, I know that they won't put the headliner on until um, 11.30 or 12, and then you're playing till 2 in the morning. And last year, Uli John Roth played there, and he was so aggravated and so annoyed yeah. that yeah. he had to go on so late. He said he didn't understand it. And he, in fact, he wondered out loud as I was driving him in the car, he was wondering out loud, is anybody still going to be there when I go on? You know? Yeah. Um, anyway... Uh, it, it's something that, that, that needs to be done. Uh, and I don't know if laws need to be passed because I don't like to pass laws. I mean, I, I, I think common sense should prevail. I don't think you need the government involved, but maybe you need the government involved, right? Yeah, I, I, I'm always, you know, one for, for not having laws if, if, if we don't need them. And I, maybe, you know, maybe it's a discussion. I would love to hear you talk with a, a club owner about it and hear their side of it, because maybe there's something we're, we're just not getting. But, uh, you know, I don't, I don't know what that could be. Well, listen, I've, I've had conversation with bar owners, not on the show, but off the record and stuff. And they say, hey, man, we're in a business. We have to sell beer. And it's just like, yes, of course you have to sell beer. But... 
if you start your show at 7, those 45-year-olds that have to be at the office at 8 in the morning or have to have their kids off to grade 10, you know, in the morning, they'll come. They will yeah. come and hang out for a couple of hours, but you know very well that they can't do it anyway. Uh, it's something I, that, that definitely needs to be talked about, and I think at some point, like any change, I think consumers and, 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 and your pocketbook will speak and say, hey, folks, we, we need to either not go to shows, which is the worst thing ever, or it, something's got to be done. You know, something, I agree. Something, something's got to be done. And it's, it's nice to see that um, Japan and the UK have created this sort of live music culture where there's a respect for the fans, there's a respect for the bands. And, you know, the bands take it hard, too. I, I've spoken to a lot of the bands who do these club runs, and they're playing at 11 at night, 11.30, finishing at 1 in the morning. And you know what? They're not spring chickens either. They are yeah, physically true. beaten up the next day. And then when they finish their three-week three run, four, you know, their month run, they are physically, and I don't want to say handicapped, but it, it's basically that. They're just, you know, they need a couple of weeks of just like, ugh. Recovery. Yeah. yeah, and there's no need for it. There, there really is no need for it. Uh, Mark, great pleasure uh, for you, uh, for having you today. Uh, yeah, thanks you know. for having me. Definitely. And, of course, I, I do recommend everybody head over to talkingmetal.com you've got a bunch of interviews there you've got all kinds of on this day stuff great news great great content and uh, I will be right back after this with Vivian Campbell this is Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn Mitch LaFawn big thank you to Mark Striegel over at Talking Metal for that very very uh, thought provoking conversation and you heard us mention, or you heard me mention, Nickelback. That show has since happened. And uh, listen, you say what you will about the band. They do deliver live. Um, you know, just, a, just a great great show, great energy. The fans had a great time. We are in the uh, beginning of July here. Canada, my country, just marked its 150th anniversary. So uh, happy birthday to Canada. But uh, speaking of Canadian bands, just mentioned Nickelback. In um, June, or earlier this year, I saw uh, Loverboy, and I, of course, I interviewed guitarist Paul Dean on the uh, first episode of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFon, featuring also Andy Summers of The Police. But uh, speaking of Canadian bands that are just doing it right, holy mackerel, unbelievably uh, great. Those songs, Working for the Weekend, and all that, you know, loving every minute of it, they still resonate in a live setting. So if, if you have a chance, if because if, Loverboy does dip into the States, they don't really get much over to, to Europe and Japan and stuff like that, but they do Canadian and, and American runs. If you see them coming, head out and see them. They are absolutely fantastic live. Um, and then just before I get over here to Vivian Campbell and the, uh, the River Dogs, another band that I saw on uh, July 2nd in uh, Brockville was Honeymoon Suite. You know, Canada has some unbelievably uh, great talent, and I know south of the border some of these bands get ignored or sometimes just forgotten. You know, there, there's no uh, ill will intended, but uh, uh, hopefully uh, Honeymoon Suite can start doing some American runs because there's another uh, great band. And I will finish with this, uh, speaking of great bands, uh, coming up on Rock Talk, uh, I will have Tommy Shaw of the band Sticks. Their new album, The Mission, is probably the best thing they've done in uh, 25 to 30 years. 
and it is now fronted by Canadian Lawrence Gowan, or as we call him in, up here, simply Gowan. Absolutely phenomenal album. Uh, definitely worth checking out if you haven't already. And uh, bringing us now to a band and an album that definitely is worth checking out is California by the River Dogs, featuring, uh, well, hey, uh, a Canadian singer, uh, Rob Lamont. Uh, you know, this is like a Canadiana um, festival today. But California is is a strong, strong album. And it's nice to see Vivian break away from that sort of Def Leppard sound, Def Leppard mold. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm, I'm an incredibly huge fan. But it just gives you this different sort of texture and flavor to, to his guitar playing and what he does. So uh, pick up... River Dogs, uh, California, if you uh, see it, or, you know, Apple Music or Spotify or wherever you you choose to uh, consume music, absolutely worth checking out. And uh, the fun thing with this interview with Vivian is that we don't only cover Def Leppard. Uh, in fact, we, we barely mention Def Leppard. We talk about all the other stuff, the new wave of British heavy metal. We get a White Snake mention in there, River Dogs, Last in Line, all kinds of great stuff. So without further ado, here is the one. The only Vivian Campbell. We are speaking with Vivian Campbell of, of course, Def Leppard, but of course, of the River Dogs as well. Uh, pleasure to speak with you, Vivian. And you, Mitch. Nice yes. talking again. Yes, it's been it's been a couple of years that we've done uh, done something. Um, you know, I, I I'm sure you do a lot of Def Leppard interviews, so let, let's focus this one on the River Dogs and the new album, California. Um, Talk to me about putting this one together, because it has, it has been six years, and I've had a chance to hear a bunch of the tracks, and just absolutely blown away by what I'm hearing, but I'm also hearing a lot more guitar, a lot more drive. Is that something that, was, that, that you really wanted to get in there, sort of more guitars? Absolutely. I mean, we went into this record with a very, very clear agenda that we were going to make an album, a River Dogs album, that was as reminiscent as possible to the original album. Um, the, the record you mentioned from about six years ago kind of just happened. I mean, it, there was no formal plan to do that. We just all happened to be in LA and, uh, drummer Mark Danzeisen has a home studio and we were there and there were a few acoustic guitars laying around. I mean, it, it wasn't really a real record and it, it certainly wasn't, uh, anything that was reminiscent of the original sound of the river dog. So, um, you know, I was approached a year or two ago, uh, by Frontiers Records by Serafino, who's the head of the label there. And uh, we had just released a, a very successful record with Last in Line. Yep. And Serafino called me up and said, I know you're in Def Leppard and with Last in Line, but how do you feel about doing another River Dogs record? And I, I was excited about it. We, we talked about that, and Serafino made it very clear that uh, he was only interested in it if it was in the style of the original album. And I wholeheartedly agreed with him. And uh, I called the other guys in the band. I called uh, Mark Danzeisen and then Nick Brophy and Rob Lamoth. And I said, guys, you up for this? And they were absolutely all on board. So so we had that very, very clear direction going into this, which I, I think really, really helped us. You know, we had a very, very clear focus on what we were trying to achieve. Um, Nick is not only the bass player in the band, but Nick has for decades and decades been a studio engineer and is very successful and currently living in Nashville mixing and producing uh, mostly country and pop artists. And Nick uh, took on the production and, and recording chores on, on this 
River Dogs record, and he actually spent a lot of time on the phone with Jeff Glixman, who had produced and mixed the original album, and uh, kicked his brain about what uh, sonic tricks Jeff used back in the day. And uh, I even went to the to the bother of getting out uh, all the original amps that I'd used on the original River Dogs record too, and uh, even the original guitar for, for some of the tracks. So um, we really tried to, you know, stay stay true to that brief to make it as as close as possible in, in terms of sonics to the original album. Yeah, and it, and I think it, I think it worked. Let's let's go back to the beginning of the band, '89. Uh, you had just finished the uh, the White Snake tour with Adrian Vandenberg and all that, and you weren't in Def Leppard yet. Was this sort of just uh, the River Dogs, a start of just another side project until the next sort of big gig came up? Or was this the band that you were hoping to develop into your own kind of thing? Yeah, I was wholeheartedly invested in River Dogs back in the day. Um, it kind of happened, uh, it was a strange uh, sequence of events that led me to, to joining the band, but I had been asked uh, to produce some demos for them in L.A. at the time, and I was kind of splitting my time between L.A. and Nevada, where Whitesnake were working on pre-production for the next Whitesnake record. Um, but things weren't going well with, with Whitesnake, and I, I kind of knew the writing was on the wall, and my time there was limited. Um, and uh, currently, when I was cutting these demos with River Dogs, they were very unhappy with their guitar player at the time, and uh, a couple of the guys in the band asked if I'd be interested in... Uh, cutting the guitar tracks and I said no, I wouldn't do that as long as they had a guitar player in the band I wasn't going to go in and step on his feet um, so over a period of a couple of weeks two things happened I, I parted company with Whitesnake and they the River Dogs parted company with the original guitar player so rather than just uh, be a producer to the band I believed so so very very much in, in what they had going on and in particular in Rob Lamoth's singing and songwriting he's one of the most talented people I've had the pleasure to work with and I just I thought this is a, a great signing band, a great opportunity musically for me uh, to write and, and to develop as a singer, and certainly you know to develop more as a guitar player. So so I jumped in with both feet into that, and you know this was back in the day when you had substantial recording budgets. So we did get a record deal after a month or two, and uh, we had the time and the luxury to develop. Uh, we went out and played some local shows around Southern California. Um, we wrote a lot of songs. Um, went through a bit of a personnel change. The, the original drummer uh, was no longer in the band after several months, but uh, you know the, the the style of the band and the, the direction of the band was really shaping up. Um, and it was unfortunate that uh, in over the course of about a year and a half from that point to when we actually released the record, uh, our record company went through a major upheaval. We were signed to CBS Records, and this was during the time when they were being bought by Sony. And there were wholesale changes going on at the label. Um, people were coming and going. People were being shifted to other departments. People were being laid off. Uh, the biggest change of all was when a new managing director came in. And basically, the week or the month that the record came out, he sat us all down and said, guys, I'm sorry, but I don't, I don't hear this record. I don't feel it. I'd like you to start work on another record. And we were just completely devastated by that news it had taken us 18 months and a lot of heartache to get to that stage and we really believed in what we had and many many other people did too but the when the managing director of your record company tells you he's not hearing the record and he doesn't want to work it then you know you're 
you know, you're on a road to nowhere. So um, that's kind of what happened with that band. And it was really, really sad. But I think over the decade, uh, we've been vindicated by it because the, the record has been, the original River Dogs record is, is a bit of a cult classic. I've never met anyone who didn't like the record. And, you know, it even won uh, awards in Europe and whatnot. And, and it's got great, great reviews over the decades. And so, you know, it's rewarding for us creatively to know that we made a great, great record, even though uh, the record company at the time couldn't couldn't hear it, you know. But that's a familiar story in this business, isn't it? Yeah. Well, it really is, and that—that's—that's that's sort of what I was going to ask you because there had been this this sort of famous quote of that you just sort of said that the, the record guy came in and said, "I don't hear it," and yet fans over the years hear it, and it, it does have this cult status, and it's unbelievable. Now, another album that that has this great cult status. Um, you first worked with Lou Graham on his. Um, uh, what was it? The Long Hard Look album, and then you form a band with him called Shadow King. Uh, was that another situation where the record company just mishandled it? Because I mean, you got Kevin Valentine, who of course has ghosted on some Kiss albums. You've got Lou Graham, the voice of Foreigner. You um, talk to me a little bit about Shadow King, because that album too is much revered by fans, and it's one of those sort of cult classics that have fallen through the cracks. Well, that, that record was difficult to make. Um... I don't think it was so much because of record company politics. It was more intrapersonal politics and, and maybe not even politics. It's just the situation. Um, w- without going too far in depth into this, I mean, right. Lou, I, I got to say, Lou Graham is one of the nicest people I've ever met in the record right. industry. He's a genuinely wonderful human being and a great talent. And it was a pleasure to work with him. Um, But at the time when all this was happening, when we were making this record, Lou was in a very dark place in his personal life and was going through a lot of issues. And um, as a result of that, kind of wasn't present a lot when we were making that record. Um, A byproduct of that was that then Keith Olsen, the record producer, was no longer present. So the wheels were coming off of that. And uh, I, I had some creative issues with what we were doing with the record and the direction it was going in the absence of the principal being Lou and the producer being Keith. Um, so I, I didn't agree with what was happening creatively with the record and, and I, I couldn't really invest in it and I kind of withdrew from it. At, at this time, I was still under contract to Sony as a result of the Riverdogs because this came right after the Riverdogs record. Right. Um, so they had me under contract and I was intent on making a solo record of my own. I was working on developing my, my, my voice and my singing ability. I was working with a bunch of co-writers around the country and amassing an arsenal of songs and cutting demos. And I was excited by that, you know, so I was doing the Shadow King project concurrent to that. So I just basically went off for a while and focused on that aspect, on making a record of my own. And um, I let Bruce Turgan play all the rhythm guitar. Well, not all the rhythm guitars, but a great amount of the rhythm guitars on the record because I was having a bit of a creative clash there as the <laughs> hard tube sign. Um, you know, the original brief for the record, when Lou called me and said, hey, do you want to form a, a, a band? And uh, I, I said, yeah, let's, let's get together and talk about this. And uh, he was a big, big Paul Rogers fan. And uh, we talked about having a heavy blues band, a four-piece guitar, bass, drums, and vocal, uh, very, very much in the mold of free, because he knew that I was also a big uh, Paul Kossoff fan. And that's kind of 
what I was expecting we were going to do. And, and the end result to me doesn't sound a lot like that at all. So that's kind of the the direction I wanted the, the band to go in. And uh, when Lou was no longer there and Keith Olsen was no longer on on site, <laughs> kind of just drifted off into something else. So so I just came back in at the 11th hour and put on guitar solos on it. But by this time, I'd already, to be honest, I'd uh, to a certain extent kind of, you know, I wouldn't say washed my hands of it, but but I'd, I'd lost a lot of interest in it. And then we went to UK and we did one show in London. Uh, and the show was great. It was great fun. I mean, obviously in the live environment, the band was a bit more what it should have been. Uh, and then we went off to do radio promo and, and Lou kind of disappeared down the rabbit hole again. And, and that's when I kind of feel I can't can no longer commit to that, you know. So it was just a, a an unfortunate series of, of, of events that were going on and um you know but again I reiterate that that I had no issues with Lou and he's one of the most genuine people I've ever met in the business. Oh, oh absolutely. And, and you know, maybe you can't hear it because you were too close to it, but in terms of the fan perspective, it really is a great album that that, that stands the test of time. I mean it's fun to in fact I have it in front of me, right in front of me in front of the computer here. It it, it you know, it's, it's it's great fun. Um for you though, career well, yeah. Go ahead. Well, no, I, I appreciate your saying that. And sometimes, you know, it is true. You can't see the forest for the trees. You know, I, I don't own a copy of the record. And I have not listened to it in many, many, many years, you know, but because it, it wasn't what I was expecting and hoping it would be. And so I was kind of disappointed. <laughs> so right. I kind of put it on the back burner for many, many years, you know, but maybe maybe you're right. Maybe I'll go back and listen to it and say, OK, yeah, that's not so bad, you know. Yeah, sure I mean, it has its moments. It has its moments, and I mean, listen, with you playing guitar on it, Kevin Valentine, who's an unsung hero, I mean, just an absolute great yeah. drummer, and Lou Graham, I mean, yeah. whether he was in a rabbit hole or not, or his voice is still a voice, and it was still great, uh, you know? Oh, absolutely, yeah. So, yeah. so no, no, the, the elements, but um, for you, though, at that time, you know, River Dogs comes out, and your, your studio guy says, eh, I'm not so sure, and then you do Shadow King, and that doesn't work out. Career-wise, were, were you sort of get coming into sort of a slump, or were you feeling like, "Uh-oh, what's going on here?" And and did Def Leppard sort of save you? Or was it, or was it a great relief? How was that sort of transition? Because you went from, "Okay, that's not working. This isn't working," and boom, Def Leppard. And it's like, bam. Well, that's... well, you're right. It, it was. I mean, going back even further. I mean, you got to take it back to 1985 and Dio. I mean, Dio was my first major band, um, and that business situation didn't work out well at all and it left me with such a bad taste in my mouth that, that for many many years it's taken a long long time for me to get over that um that's not to say that i didn't believe in that band i absolutely 100 percent believe in that band and, and um but the, the business side of it went went really a uh and then white snake thing you know it wasn't so bad in white snake but there were various things going on that, that made it impossible for me to stay in that band um and then the River Dogs record, we we get to to where the record's about to be released, and we really believe in it. And the record company push it off the cliff, you know. And then Shadow King, as you say. So yeah, I was thoroughly disappointed. I was I was putting all of my energy at the time into being a solo artist because I was really starting to believe that I could not be in a band for various reasons or other. Um, and that's when when Joe called me, Joe Elliott, and uh, I'd known Joe socially because Joe had lived in Dublin for years and uh, we had a lot of mutual friends and um, I'd see him for dinner and for drinks when I'd go back to Ireland. When Joe would come to LA, he called me to 
hook him up with a, a soccer game on a Sunday morning, you know, pickup game. And so we, we knew each other and we knew the sort of people that we both are. And, and Joe said to me, you know, that uh, it had been about a year since Steve had passed away and that uh, the band were going to look for a new guitar player to continue as a five piece and that he thought that I'd be right for the band. So I, you know, they were very cagey about who to approach and how to approach it. Obviously they were replacing an original member of the band. Um, I can understand that that would have been extremely difficult for them. Um, and for me, from the other direction coming in, I was very wary about joining another band, you know, uh, given what had happened in, in recent years. And, um, you know, so we, we had what was basically a courtship over a couple of months. We'd get together and play in a rehearsal room, and, and the music was no problem. I mean, I knew they were Def Leppard, and they knew I could play guitar. <laughs> so, I mean, that was the easy part we'd play. I think what, what genuinely surprised them the first night that we played together was the fact that I can sing. And I remember Joe going, wow, I had no idea that you could sing. He says, this is a real bonus, because obviously Def Leppard is such a vocal, intense band. Um so, you know, we'd literally get together and play. We'd meet a couple of days later, go to dinner, play a football game on a Saturday morning or Sunday morning, go back into the rehearsal room the next night and play some more. It was, uh, you know, this went on for, for several weeks and it was just us all getting to know each other to see whether the chemistry was right and whether it would work. And, um, you know, it's been 25 years, so I do yep. think it is working. <laughs> <laughs> You know, it, it's bizarre to think that I've been in Def Leppard longer than Steve was yeah. by, by a country mile, you know, so it's, it really is strange. Um, but so, yeah, finally, I found a band that I could work with. And, and, and one of the great things about Def Leppard is that when I'm not with Def Leppard, there's a lot of flexibility to allow me to follow up these other passion projects. Like uh, I made a blues record yep. in 2004. Um, I had a little project called Clock back in the late 90s. Um, I've obviously done a couple of things with River Dogs now, this new latest and greatest record and, and the Last in Line project, which continues to be ongoing also, you know. Yeah, and so, so there's a lot to, to follow up here. Let's go to Last in Line. Um, you did Heavy Crown, which, which was an incredible album. I mean, I think, I think fans were pleasantly surprised. You know, when, when a band gets together and they're going to you know, do this, you go, oh, what's going to happen? And it came out and it was great. But for you, does it sort of put a period at the end of the Dio story because you did leave in unfit, savory conditions. And, you know, we, we've seen the videos on YouTube where people are bad-mouthing each other and, and, you know, whatever. We don't need to talk about that. But was it nice to go out on stage um, with Vinny and the guy and Jimmy and, and play those songs and, and get in the studio? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so much has changed over the years, you know, and, and time is a great equalizer in a lot of ways. Um, you know, I, the circumstances, I was fired from the band first and foremost, I'd like to put that out there because for decades, people seem to be laboring under the, uh, impression that I actually turned my back on the band that I quit deal. That's absolutely hundred percent not true. I was fired in the middle of a tour and Craig Goldie was brought in to replace me. Um, it was a very carefully orchestrated maneuver on, on Wendy Dio's behalf. Um, when the band was formed, Ronnie, there were four people in the room, Ronnie, Jimmy, Ben, Vinnie Apice and myself. And Ronnie said to us, he, he said, I'm going to ask you guys to work for literally next to nothing for three years. He said, this is very, very much going to be a band in the way it's presented and as a creative venture. And we did. We wrote those songs together. But he said, 
um, if we can see this through and get it off the ground by the third album, we'll make this an equitable situation. And I was the, the squeaky wheel. So I was the one who actually reminded Ronnie of this when we were doing the third album. And I kept reminding him and he kept pushing it off and saying, we'll talk about it when the record's done. And I said, okay. And then when the record was done, I went back to Ronnie. I said, Ronnie, we need to talk about this. Remember, you promised us back in the day that you would do this for us. And we we put our blood, sweat and tears into this project for three years and three albums. And he gets in, well, we'll talk about it when Wendy comes out on the road. We'll get the tour started. And so that's kind of how it was left. And then halfway through the tour, I find myself uh, being sent a contract from Wendy Dio asking me to work for another couple of hundred dollars a week and that failure to return this contract by a certain day would constitute my long, no longer being in the band. And I tried to get Ronnie on the phone and Ronnie wouldn't take my call. I was in Europe at the time. I'd flown back to Ireland to see my family um, when, when this <laughs> FedEx, mysterious FedEx contract arrived. And um, I just couldn't get a hold of Ronnie. And the next thing I know, the band <laughs> are on tour with Craig Goldie and that was it and I was gone. And also, concurrent to all of this, in the press, Ronnie is saying that I had quit the band, which is absolutely untrue. I've been fired from the band. So it left such a bad taste in my mouth. I had invested so much emotionally in, in, into the, the creative aspect of that band. It really was a fantastic band. The original Dio band of Ronnie, Vinny, Jimmy, and myself was was the greatest Dio lineup, and it was a magical band. And to be just cast aside like that and then to be portrayed in the press as being the one who had turned my back on the band just it hurt me so so much i just wanted nothing to do with it for years and years i just turned my back in it and you know like i said before time is a great equalizer and i think it's probably easier for me to reflect upon it because ronnie passed away years ago so so dio the band no longer exists so i was able to kind of go back to it and and re-examine it and a bunch of other things happened to um you know, I, I played briefly as a stunt guitarist with Thin Lizzy in 2011 for, for several months. And that was a real highlight for me because uh, their music was so influential on, on my developing years as a guitar player. And just to be on stage with Scott and Brian Downey playing the songs of my youth kind of reignited my passion for, for my first love, which was playing aggressive rock guitar. So I came off of that Lizzy tour and that's when I called Jimmy and Vinny. And at this stage, R Ronnie had passed away about a year or so prior to this. And um, we got together and we played and it was, it was just magic again. And I kind of, I thought to myself, this is as much our music as it was Ronnie's. And this was taken from me. It was taken from us in a lot of ways. Um, and so I kind of have a whole different perspective on it now. It is as much my heritage as it was Ronnie's and Jimmy's and Vinny's. And it's a great pleasure to me to go out there and play that. And I play it with great pride right. and, um, I've always really enjoyed playing with those guys. And it's just heartbreaking that Jimmy passed away a couple of years ago, you know, right on the, literally a month before the last in line record was to drop. And, you know, Jimmy's death was kind of devastating to us, but Jimmy really believed in the project. Uh, we all really, really enjoyed each other's company and, and to, to reunite again after all these years and to play the songs that we helped to create with Ronnie, you know, and, and to keep that alive. It's just, it's been a pleasure. Yeah, it really has been. And it has been for the, from the fan perspective as well. Were you at a point, though, where if you heard Holy Diver on the radio, you would turn it off or, and, and you would curse it and just say, oh, stupid well, album? Well, I wouldn't go as far as to curse it, but yeah, I, I would turn it off. 
Yeah, it, it was a painful reminder for many, many years. I didn't own the records. I didn't listen to the records. I just wanted nothing to do. Even when people would come up to me and, and compliment me on, on that period of my, my history, you know, I kind of would, you know, I'd grip my teeth a little bit and say thanks. But, you know, it's uh, it's a bit of a painful reminder. But, you know, I now have a totally different opinion of it, you know. It's just... Well, that's, that's what it's, I was sort of getting uh, to with Last in Line. I mean, that, it, it sort of closes the circle, right? I mean, you sort of come back and say, does. okay, you know, it was great. I, what the hell? Absolutely. It was, it was great, and I'm very proud of it, and I'm, it gives me great, great joy to play it again, especially with, with, with Vinny and, and with Jimmy while he was still with us. And, uh, you know, in many ways, I, I'm kind of saddened that, that – that Ronnie and I never had a chance to make it up because I know that there was a part of Ronnie that was really dark and really angry, but I know there was another part of him that, that was really sweet and forthcoming. And I think that under the right circumstances, Ronnie and I would have sat down and had a beer and made our peace and we could have even worked together again. Mm-hmm. And it would have been great. But, you know, there's a lot of gatekeepers in this industry. And, and one of the things that they do very, very well is keep people apart, you know? Oh, um, yeah. I, I know. I, I, uh, it wouldn't have happened as long as those kid keepers were there. Is oh, my point. Yeah. No, no, uh, yeah, there. Yeah, uh, as somebody who tries to get interviews all the time, uh, we meet some of the gatekeepers too. To keep yes. Um, uh, in the latter part of 2016, you mentioned that Last in Line was going to start recording a second album in 2017. We are now halfway through 2017. Where are we in terms of a second last in line? Or is River Dog sort of taken over for this year and, and we'll see in 2018? Yeah, yeah. yeah. River Dog's and then Def Leppard scheduled this tour that we just wrapped up, you know, so it's it kind of did usurp a little bit of the time. We were about 50% into the last in line album. We've got about 50% of it written. Um, we'll be getting together in the next couple of weeks to do some more shows. We'll do some more writing. We actually have a start date. We're going back into the studio again with Jeff Tilson to produce. Um, we start on September the 11th, I believe, is our first tracking day. Uh, but uh, given the rate for Jeff's schedule and our schedule, I, it probably won't be delivered until December, so it would be early 2018 before it gets out. Well, I'm certainly but looking it is, for it. Is, it is coming, and, and the new songs are really interesting. I mean, you can really, I can really hear the growth as a band. You know, and and the growth of of the style and the songwriting, it's it's it, you know some of the arrangements are a bit more complex than they were on the the first album, and uh, it's it's been a real joy. Gotta uh, say, no, I can't, I can't wait to hear it. Um, June fourteenth uh, would have marked uh, Rory Gallagher's sixty ninth birthday. He of course unfortunately passed away in ninety um, five. Uh, I'm sorry, he was born in March. I should say he passed away in June of ninety five. Um, You've been a big fan over the years. I, you know, posted that on my Facebook that he passed away in, in June of 95. And so, and a lot of Americans wrote back and said, who, who is he? And what a lot of Europeans would say, oh, God, thanks for remembering him. What did Rory mean to you in your upbringing and your start in guitar playing? Well, Rory was my first bona fide guitar hero. Uh, I grew up in Belfast in the 1970s, and at the time it was a, a very troubled place. Um, you know, there's a lot of sectarian division and uh, very, very, very few international rock acts would come and play in Belfast. Um, Rory was 
an Irishman, obviously, and had actually lived part of his life in Belfast. So uh, he considered it one of his hometowns. And every Christmas, Roy would come and do a show at the Ulster Hall in Belfast. And that was the first concert I saw. Um, it was also that year uh, my cousin gave me for Christmas uh, Rory's Live in Europe 72 album. So uh, I was 10 years old and uh, the first live concert I'd ever seen, first album I'd ever had, and it was Rory Gallagher. So it was it was like a religious experience to me, you know? Um, and then I went to see him for all the successive years when he'd come back and play around Christmas time. Uh, got more of his albums. Uh, he was the first guitar player that I actually tried to copy, that I'd drop a needle on, on the album and, and try and figure out what he was playing and how to play it. Um, I'm 100% self-taught, so I think I learned a lot of my physical bad habits, well, habits, bad and good, from Rory. Because, um, like I said, that was the very first one that I tried to emulate. And and then uh, in later years, I discovered Gary Moore. <laughs> and uh, he was the... It was Gary Moore was the only other guitar player I copied more than Rory Gallagher, I think, you know. Um, but they do say that's the most sincere form of flattery. So I do mean it in a flattering sense. You know, they were both huge, huge heroes to me. And, and Rory actually met him after several years. When I was a kid, I got him to sign my, my concert ticket. And he was a lovely, lovely human being. Yeah, he really was. And, and of course, I meant no disrespect by inverting his birthday and his, uh, the day of his passing. Uh-huh. Um, and let me go over here to Sweet Savage. Uh, you started with Sweet Savage back in, in 79, or certainly late uh-huh. 70s. Talk to me a little bit about that new wave of British heavy metal, because even Def Leppard were sort of lumped into that. Um, and yet I, I, I get a sense when I talk to the guys, you know, like Rob Weir and Tigers of Pantang or... or um, those other bands that there was sort of a camaraderie it really wasn't a competitive scene it was more like all these bands are sort of buddies and we're all just what was it like for you well in sweet savage we were on the fringes of the scene only because uh geographically we were across the water you know we were in ireland um in ireland there was only one other band that could be generally lumped into that whole new river british heavy move uh Heavy metal, and that was a band called the Mamas Boys. So um, we we were very very aware through the the, the trade papers, uh, through sounds and Melody Maker, and to a lesser extent than the Musical Express. You know the weekly papers that you would read, and then Kerrang, of course, the magazine was born around that time. So we would read up about all these bands, and then certainly the charge was being led by Iron Maiden and Def Leppard. And I know that that Leppard don't like to be associated so much with. The, the movement, but I mean, it certainly was concurrent to Def Leppard's coming up, and Def Leppard's roots were as a hard rock band, so I think to a certain extent, you know, there, there has to be uh, some sort of association there. Um, but I remember, you know, reading about these bands and being very inspired. One of the things that really inspired me was, was Def Leppard's rise and the fact that, that they, this band up in Sheffield, you know, we're a couple hundred miles north of London where all the real action was, where Iron Maiden were, and, uh, you know, that they'd independently released an EP and somehow gotten it to John Peel at BBC and he played it on his show and that had led to Jeff Barton from Sounds driving up the motorway to see the band play and give them a feature story. And, you know, so I, I was very, very inspired by that, that they'd taken this whole DIY route 
Um, and I was very, very much a, aware of Leopard and very, very much a Leopard fan, and I appreciated all of it that they were doing right from day one. Uh, Sweet Savage, though, we were a little bit heavier. We were across, we were very inspired by, by Thin Lizzy, uh, but we were also equally inspired by the the new wave movement and, and more aggressive, energetic bands, like even Motorhead. So I always say that we were kind of a cross between Lizzie and Motorhead. Um, not that we really intended to be that aggressive or that fast or that heavy, but we were kind of young and nervous and we'd, we'd drink a lot of coffee and smoke a lot of cigarettes. And, and we, if we rehearsed the song at a hundred beats per minute, we'd play at about 130. Yeah, once, once you get in front of an audience, right. that adrenaline just, just takes you away. And in particular, our drummer, our drummer was just, he was well, well ahead of the beat. So we were always, you know, a very aggressive sounding band live. And, and Remy Haller, the bass player and singer, and still to this day, my, my best friend, um, Remy sings just like James Hetfield. And this was before Hetfield. He has a really growly kind of snarly sound and, and um, you know, much like the River Dogs record was never recognized at the time when it was released, uh, you know, Sweet Savage, we never, <laughs> we never really got a chance to leave our mark, but it was kind of nice uh, in a way that years later, Metallica actually covered one of our songs, yeah. you know. Killing um, Joke, right? So, killing, killing Time, Killing Time, Killing Time, 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 time sorry. Killing Time. So, you know, it's, um, who knows? I mean, maybe Sweet Savage, we might have had a chance had we been possibly closer to where the action was over in mainland UK and especially in London. But, you know, we were, we were in Belfast and like I said, it was the seventies and nobody came there. And it was, it was a little bit more difficult to actually, you know, get some traction and get some attention when you're over there in Belfast in the seventies, but we did what we could, you know, we certainly tried and, and I'm proud of my time with that band too. Yeah. And, and, and that whole scene was just what there was there was a glorious innocence to that entire scene and i guess the bands that sort of have succeeded are the ones that managed to conquer the united states because you know tigers of pantang diamond head all those bands sweet savage you know you're doing stuff that that priest was doing you're doing stuff that leopard was doing and yet for some reason those bands couldn't conquer the states unfortunately um yeah yeah the tigers of pantang in particular i'm glad you mentioned that i I sort of almost forgotten that but i i was a big fan of the Pantang too, but uh, mostly because of John Sykes. Uh, yeah. Again, going back to Gary Moore, John Sykes and I were both obviously very influenced by Gary, and I could tell that in his playing. As soon as I heard John play, I was, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> and why is he ripping off Gary Moore also? You know, so um, I hope John takes that in the right spirit and knows what I mean. But uh, And he's such a great singer too, so I think when, when John joined the Tigers of Pantang, he really elevated that band, and I became very, very interested in them, but you know, they got close. They had a couple of minor hits in the UK charts, but yeah. like you say, they didn't crack America, and that's really kind of, with benefit of hindsight, that, that's what they needed to do. Yeah, and, and it's sort of also interesting that, that John and you have, have had sort of parallel careers in the sense that he, he played in Thin Lizzy for a while, you played in Thin Lizzy for a while, he, <laughs> yeah. he went over to Whitesnake, you went over to Whitesnake. Oh, I know you're, gonna, you're running out of time, you've got about five minutes, so I'll ask you two last questions. Uh, uh, Def Leppard is preparing the 30th anniversary of Hysteria. Obviously, you did not play on it. You weren't part of the band, but you've played the songs live long enough. Um, were you a fan of the album when it came out? And, and just looking back uh, at that time, I, and yeah. Absolutely, I was a fan. I mean, I was a huge fan. I was a little bit shocked upon first listening because there's not a lot of prominent guitar parts. 
Um, but I think once you give it a second or third look, and certainly once I give it a second or third look, and then I really, you know, you hear there's so much complexity in the record. There's such a great depth of songwriting on the record. It's such a, a milestone album. Um, I actually bought it on cassette and uh, I wore the cassette out and Hysteria was one of the very first CDs that I bought because it was also right around the time when people were transitioning from albums and cassettes over to CDs. Uh, I remember I, I got my first CD player and, and Hysteria was one of the first albums I put on there. And then once you actually hear it in that format, it, and especially if you listen in headphones, it, you just realize just what a, what a remarkable record it is. And um, you're right. I, I've played those songs now for 25 years. I know them inside and out and, um, they stand the test of time, you know, and, and that's part of the reason why we're seeing more and more with Def Leppard, we're seeing so many uh, younger people coming to our shows over the years, and especially in the last two years. And it's, it's really kind of revitalized and re-energized this band because um, the music has transcended the generation. It's not just for our generation, but it's for a whole new generation. So that's, that's very exciting for us. Yeah, it really is. And, and, it it really reads like a like a greatest hits record. Even songs like Run Right and Don't Shoot Shotgun that don't get a lot of attention in in the live setting, I personally think they're absolutely fantastic. Um, let me finish quickly then with the River Dogs because uh, we're going to run out of time. But where do we go from here? Is it because you know Def Leppard is is sort of off until September? Do you start thinking about making this more of a band rather than just sort of a, a one off project? Is it the touring entity? I, I, I... I, I would love to, but I, I really don't see how it is possible. I mean, never say never, but I, I have so much on my plate. I mean, you're, you're right. I'm going back out again with Leopard in late September. I'm starting the second Last in Line album, September 11th. Right. Uh, and in, in between now and then, I'm going to Europe for two and a half weeks with the Last in Line. And um, we also have some U.S., a handful of U.S. shows in between that. Uh <laughs> You know, I also have two daughters and a wife, and I'm also dealing with cancer. So it's like, well, that's it. I, I just, there's only a certain amount of hours in the day. You know, I'd love to play with, with River Dogs, but it's it's not as easy as people think to gear up and just go out and play shows. I mean, there's a lot of time and expense involved that I don't see that it's really possible at this stage, you know? Uh, and is this something, though, where maybe you say, okay, in two years there'll be another, even if it's not a touring entity, can it still be a recording entity and have River Dogs, you know, California Part 2 in 2019? Or is it like, no, let's just enjoy this? And no. Well, it, it certainly could. I mean, that, that depends on, on, you know, the response the record gets. If, if there seems to be a demand for that sort of thing, then absolutely we could do that. Um, if there's so much demand for it that we deem it, appropriate to go and play some shows then we'll make the effort you know but um it, it's particularly difficult to think of that um not just from the the point of view of everyone's schedule but uh even the financials you know i mean we no longer live in los angeles you know so even for us just to get together to rehearse is going to cost a few thousand dollars you know i mean there, there is no budget there for this you know there's it's um it's you know, we can't just go out and play. If we did go out and play, we'd have to play songs also from the, the original album, and we'd, it would require a certain amount of, of, of effort and expense and time to, to just gear up for any sort of a, a mini tour, however brief, you know. And, you know, the record companies are not what they used to be. I mean, we made this album on an absolute shoestring budget. <laughs> we'll probably pull about 75 bucks each from this record. You know, it's very, very much a labor of love 
you know, that's, that's the reason why we made it. And, and anything else we get from this is gravy, but uh, there's no there's no plans and there's certainly no budget right there to gear up for a tour. Yeah, well, it certainly came out great. And uh, you mentioned uh, your health. Are, are, is everything okay these days? I mean, I... Well, I, I'm very lucky, but it's still okay. ongoing for me. I'm, okay. For the last two years, I've been um, doing a, a process called immunotherapy. It's yep. part of a phase two clinical trial, uh, taking this amazing new drug called pembrolizumab, which just recently got FDA approved for Hodgkin's lymphoma, which is the cancer I have. Um, so I literally just finished. I had my last infusion last week, and it's a great uh boon for cancer patients because for me personally, I'm one of the very fortunate 20 to 30% of the population that have a specific DNA marker. I think it's called PDL1, which means that my body actually responds to it. And um, I know it doesn't work for everyone, but it, I, my body responds to it with absolute minimal side effects and I'm able to continue my life and my work, which is a big, big part of the process for me because if I were sidelined by the disease, to where I, I couldn't work, then I know that it would kill me because you are what you do. And I've always been a musician and I always, that's part of the reason why I keep so busy with all these different projects. I mean, music has always been my lifeblood, you know, to be out there playing guitar, writing songs with, with great creative people and, and getting that, that feedback from an audience is what keeps me going, you know? So I, I've been very fortunate with this. And um, like I say, the drug was just, recently in March, uh, FDA approved. So I'm going to be able to continue to take it beyond the clinical trial. And I get an infusion about once a month and life is on and it's all good. So I, in that regard, I am one of the lucky ones. But uh, I, I only mention it because I, I do need to schedule time to do it, you know. I've had, to, over the last couple of years, I've flown from Singapore to L.A., from London to L.A., from New York to L.A. I've flown from all over the world to go back to L.A. to get an infusion only to go straight from the hospital back to the airport to fly to rejoin the tour, you know. So so the most difficult aspect, I gotta say, in all honesty, has been the scheduling, you know. Certainly not the side effects. Yeah, well you, you you what you need to do is just sit at home and listen to the Shadow King record and do nothing else. Just take a break. (laughs) I'll be be sure to give it a listen. Yeah, and listen, we've gone way over the time. Uh, Thank you so very much, and uh, always looking forward to my next uh, Def Leppard show, and hopefully someday a a River Dog show. And and last in line, of course, can't forget that. Uh, Thank you, Vivian. Thanks, Mitch. Pleasure to talk to you again. Cheers. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFond. Rock Talk. Mitch here. Are you in the market for a new car and want to see what others have paid? Well, in order to feel comfortable that you are getting a fair price, you need pricing context. Information that empowers you to feel confident. With True Car, you will see what other people in your local market paid for the car you want. From there, you can connect with a local True Car certified dealer and enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Using TrueCar, you can easily find the car you want. TrueCar will show you what other people in your area paid for the car you want. Now you know what a fair price is, you can feel confident. Once you register, you'll see real pricing on actual inventory. This is competitive pricing offered to you only by TrueCar certified dealers for an actual vehicle on their lawn. 
It's pricing you'll see before going to a dealership so you can feel confident when you show up. With True Car, you can connect with a local certified dealer of your choosing so you can enjoy a quick, easy buying experience. True Car customers are more likely to enjoy a faster buying process when they connect with True Car certified dealers. True Car users save an average of $3,000 off MSRP. When you're ready to buy, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. Hi, this is Spike Ferrisons from Spike's Car Radio. Here we are again on the porch in Malibu, and I'm here with the great Jeremy Piven. I'm a huge fan of him and his doggy. Is your doggy's name Frenchie? <laughs> Bubba. Bubba. Well, yes. it says Frenchie on the collar. I know. He forgets who he is, what kind of dog he is. <laughs> you know, it's like I, mean, I have a, we could just have a little something that says Jew, right? So we remember <laughs> this is what I am. <laughs> I don't know. I'm not going to call it a dog a Jew. <laughs> I, 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 I can't. They did. Yeah. Well, we've taken so a really a serious turn here on the podcast. <laughs> Listen now on podcast1.com, Apple Podcasts, or the Podcast One app. Now back to Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn. And welcome back. Big thank you, of course, to Vivian Campbell of Def Leppard. New album from his other band, The River Dogs, is called California, out worldwide on July 7th, but currently available in Japan, which is where I got my copy, and it comes with a bonus track called When the Mic Drops. Uh, but now... Let us move our attention over to the Red Hot Chili Peppers and their guitarist, Josh Klingoffer. I had a chance to uh, meet up with him before their gig in Montreal at the Bell Centre, and it was absolutely fantastic. I have been in uh, festivals and other places where I have seen the Red Hot Chili Peppers, but never in an arena setting. And they have this lighting rig that comes down from, well, we'll say the sky, I mean... Uh, Technically, it's a ceiling, but they have this lighting ring that comes down from the sky, and it undulates, and it does wavy stuff, which I guess is what undulating means. And, and the effects are absolutely dazzling. So not only are you getting a whole bunch of great music, but you're getting this visual assault that is wonderful. But uh, anyway, uh, let's get on to uh, Josh. Uh, we talked about his band, Dot Hacker, and they have a new album out that came out um, in January of 2017 called Number 3. And, of course, he is on the Red Hot Chili Peppers' last album called The Getaway. So we talk about uh, Dot Hacker, we talk about The Getaway, we talk about where he comes from, what sort of his um, pedigree, and how did he get the Red Hot Chili Peppers gig. And uh, then we have a somber moment reflecting upon Chris Cornell of Soundgarden. So there you go. So tune in for all of that, and uh, here we go. Without further ado, from... The Red Hot Chili Peppers, the one, the only, Josh Klingoffer. We are speaking with guitarist Josh of the Red Hot Chili Peppers. First of all, just a welcome to Montreal. Pleasure Thank to have you. you here. Thank you. So, a lot to talk about in terms of joining the band, but let me start off with Dot Hacker, your band. Uh, formed in 2008, uh, new album, number three, came out in January of this year. Uh, talk to me about putting that band together and keeping that vision and that product going because you know the red hot chili peppers with the touring schedule and then tell me about that band um well it was a band i formed with three uh, other guys who are some of my closest friends in la um 
And it was just sort of always my dream as a kid to have a band. Right. And it just kind of never happened for me. I, um, I started playing with a guy named Bob Forrest, through whom I met the Chili Peppers, back when I was about 17 or 18. So that's really when I started playing guitar. I had just kind of been learning prior to that. So, yeah. I, you know, I kind of just, I never... I never put a band together. You know, I left school early, so I was kind of yeah. And I want to talk to you about people. all that stuff after too, because it's a very interesting sort of uh, you know arc that you've gotten to get to here. It, it, but, yeah, no, it, but, it was it was. Um, I, I mean, I feel like just yesterday I was that age, and you yeah. know, playing with Bob or just starting out. I mean, it kind of. Well, yeah. in fact, let me take you up on this playing, learning the guitar, because you know some of my favorite artists, including Ace Frehley of KISS, learned to play guitar by themselves. And I find that when you learn by yourself, you're not following those scales. and that You do it your own way, and you find your own sounds. And I find that those guitarists are especially unique. Um, talk to me about how you sort of came to the instrument. Because you started off with drums. So talk to me about how you came to the instrument. and just because I mean, I tried it at home, and look at me. I'm on this side of the microphone, right? Uh, yeah, I just, I just played a lot. I mean, I was playing drums. I was sort of sick of you know moving drums around, and I just felt... Like um, I needed to learn a tonal instrument to mm -hmm. write songs, you know, if I wanted to do that. Um, so I just started playing along with records, and and all of a sudden I was a guitar player. I didn't really know. I don't really know when that moment came, but um, I started playing with that guy Bob, and um, we had a band together. Yeah, and I, you know, that, like you said, I, I didn't spend time learning certain things as a as a young guy yeah. or, or a, a player. So, and I find I, that refreshing because you're, you're discovering the sounds by yourself, and you go, "Oh, what did my finger do?" Rather than okay, do a a a b b, you know. Yeah, well, and, and you know, <laughs> it's kind of a double edged sword because I I agree with you. I, it, I appreciate the way in which I learned and what I didn't learn, but then, you know, I would have never in a million years guess that I would be on stage in a band like this, right. where you're sort of called upon to solo and do, do things that I just didn't learn how to do and didn't have much interest in doing as a, as a kid or as a young, a young musician. So, you know, I, I, but I haven't really put too much, uh, too much thought into it. I just kind of play the way I play and that's it. You know, I mean, I, sometimes it gets me down, you know, if I, if I don't feel like I'm doing what, uh, you know, what someone else's uh, image of the guitarist of this band should, should be. be doing, but I mean that's all. That's just all your own inner dialogue that you know has a tendency to be unhealthy sometimes. So, so let's talk about because you've replaced obviously numerous guitars that have been before you in this band. Do you come in saying, "Listen, I'm just going to bring in my fresh approach," or do you like, "Hey, listen, I'm going to be your next John. I'll be a copycat." I'll, I mean. Is there any pressures from the band to be sort of the next John or the next whoever, or you just kind of come in and do what you what you no, do? No, no, certainly no pressure to be the next anybody. I mean, I think the only way it would work, joining a band like this, would be if you had the ability to be yourself and right. bring something unique and something that was fresh and exciting to them into the band. Preferably, if you are able to and have a respect for what they've done in the past and can incorporate that. Right. That's that's when I, I mean, that's why I think it's working as well as it is. I mean, you know, and it depends who you talk to, I suppose. But I had such respect for the music and the work that they did with John and with everybody who's been in this band, but, you know, particularly with John. I mean, that's, that's who the guitar player was when I learned of the band, right. you know, when I was 10 years old or 11, you know, when I first heard their music, uh, he was in the band. And then, obviously... 
years later I became friends with him and right. with the rest of them. So, you know, I, I had a, a, a musical relationship with him. So I sort of understand, you know, how the band works. And, and you know, getting back to playing with that guy, Bob Forrest, who's been friends with the Chili Peppers since the early 80s, uh, I, in that band we opened for the Chili Peppers. So I knew how every aspect of this band worked from the, the touring... Uh, to the record making, to the you know, just to the right. interpersonal, right. You know, the infrastructure. Yeah, and I, I think that's another reason why the transition and me joining was was easier than some might think. Well, let me ask you about that transition <clears throat> because you have been friends with John for many years. You've made an incredible amount of records with him. I mean, higher than I can count. My math is not that good. Um, what's it like coming in and not only replacing the guitarist of the Red Hot Chili Peppers? But replacing your buddy. Um, I mean, the whole the whole thing is strange, and I would have never have imagined it would happen. I would have never imagined that I would be doing this you right. know, a couple of years before it happened. But um, you know, I, I think it, it, it's been. I mean, the band has been nothing but welcoming and nothing but supportive of everything I've you know wanted to do. Or and and likewise, I think for them. I mean, they their relationship within the band with the four with John in the past had had become whatever it had become and I think they were excited about you know kind of doing this with a new person a new right. you know energy or whatever well it freshens up the, the room a bit yeah, yeah yeah I mean the one the one the one negative thing is my friendship with John hasn't really it sort of just someone hit the pause button on it when I joined the band and it but it makes sense to me and it doesn't you know, I, but I was going to ask you about that because when you come in and you are replacing, I mean, you know, when you look at Tommy Thayer going into Kiss replacing Ace Frehley, it's just a guy who replaces a guy or whatever bands. <clears throat> Is there a different respect going into it? I mean, do, do, do you think, okay, listen, like if John called tomorrow and said, hey, I wanted my old spot back, do you go, oh, okay, listen, I'm your friend, you can have it. I mean, does, does it, does it? Well, I, I mean, I, I don't know if. Yeah, he probably I mean, won't. He's got trick finger. But I mean, I think that, you know, that would be um, weird. Well, it'd be weird, but I was going to say, I mean, that would be more something that would require a conversation with him and the other people in the band, right. not myself. You know, I, these guys, you know, he, he quit the band. He didn't want to do this anymore um, for, for good reasons. He, he had done it and worked really hard for a long time, and, and um, he didn't want to live his life in the way that, that you have to when you're in this band. Those guys did, so, you know, it's very simple that, you know, the band's not going to just fold because he doesn't want to do it, although... You know, some people may have wished that was the case, but I mean, you know, I, like I said, I, I um, because I kind of knew and had a great respect for how this entire machine worked, I was able to kind of just become a part of it and hopefully help it grow. You know, I mean, I there are times where I still feel like, um, you know. I, yeah, I just I just hope that the the new work we do and the new music we do is as exciting to some people as some of the old stuff. You know, I don't know if that's at, at all possible. I mean, some right. some of the the highs that well, this band has achieved are just plus you know, you're fighting memories. It's hard to fight memories. Yeah, but I you know I do yeah. think um, this band has done a good job at at least trying to you know create new ones and and hope you know I hopefully hopefully it works. You know, I mean I'm surprised. I mean I, if you would have been talking to me at this point of the last tour, I don't know if I would have been as optimistic because toward the end of the when you've been out a while and it's been a long time since you've written new songs or been in the studio or kind of connected with your bandmates. 
in a intimate way rather than on stage, which is a lot more um, just yeah. kind of blown up and you're, you're playing, you know, mostly the same songs every night. I mean, we do a good job of changing it up, but um, you can sort of lose sight of what your Purpose what your focus, focus is. is yeah, yeah, and the fact that you are in a band. I mean, at a certain point, if you're a year and a half into a tour, you just sort of feel like you're a touring you know, performer, and you, you know, so, but I mean, I think now having done basically two tours with them, and we're not done with this one, but we nearly are, um, I, you know, I think it's gone well, I think people enjoy this band, and enjoy watching us play, and, yeah. you know, I think the people in it are enjoying each other's company, well, and sold I, out show after sold out show sort of testifies to that fact, right? Yeah, now. and I, you know, and it's still, it's still, for me, I mean, playing music with these guys is, is, um, a gift. It's magical to me. You know, yeah. even even when it's uh, even when it's not going well, and you know you're mad at someone for the way they looked at you or the way yeah. they the way they played that night. Not that I'd be mad, but you know, if you're if you just feel like no, you're not but I mean, it's it's still, we all get mad after. I mean, you know, at some point, even if you're married for a thing. while, you know. Yeah. Uh, the last album, uh, produced by Danger Mouse, uh, Getaway, not produced by Rick Rubin. What was that like? Uh, and maybe you can speak from from the perspective of you and the band, because the band, of course, had done albums going back, what, 25 years with Rick? Uh, and then, then they have you as a, that new energy. What was that like for you, not having Rick Rubin there and having Danger in there? And what, does he, what did he bring uh, to the mix? Um, well, for me, I mean, that was, the, that was the difference between myself and those guys. It wasn't that weird for me to right. not have Rick there. Those guys had made so many albums with him and I felt yeah. having done one that I that, that it I wasn't interested in doing another album where I felt like I had the least amount of time right. in you know as, as a part of the group the core group making the record so you know we, we, we changed it to a person who who we basically all had the same amount of time working together I mean I'd worked with Brian before and I'm friends with him but you know nothing like this so uh yeah it, you know and he has a different approach to rick similar in certain ways but you know he gets in there and he kind of chops drums up and he you know helps he helps a song co come you know we, we sort of created songs with him from the get-go which is something the band wouldn't do with rick or hadn't done before and you know all these things i mean they have their positive sides and their negative sides. Were you involved in that conversation? Because at some point they must sit down and say, okay, we're going to do a new album, and who are we going to have to produce? And the first oh, yeah, thing... no, I was very involved. I mean, that, that's the great thing about this band. I mean, okay. they, they've, I've, I'm fully in the band, and I'm a part of every conversation, and, you know, I think that, like I said earlier, that's what they want. They don't want anyone who's just going to go along with, with the way they want it to be, right. so... Yeah, I mean, it was an open discussion the whole time. It wasn't, everyone wasn't happy about it the entire time. So it wasn't like the three guys saying, okay, you go sit over there, we're going to talk about who's going to produce this, and we'll get back to you. No, okay. I mean, you know, the band has had such success with Rick for so long yeah. that I think it was uh, a scary... But at sometimes, just as from a fan perspective, I think if you have the same producer year after year, or the band producing themselves, you go... You need a new set of ears in there. You just need somebody to say, "Hey, wait yeah. a minute," you know. Yeah, which hopefully we did, you know. And yeah. I think, I think, you know, uh, yeah. So, yeah, like I said, I mean, I'm the one that that known Brian for the longest and um, friends with him, and you know, I, I probably had just as hard a time with him producing than I did with Rick. You know, I, I learned more and more about myself that I don't like working with 
producers. You know, right. I, I, there's just things about, about, um, but then again, maybe it's not producers. Maybe it's I. You know, at the end of the day, the the reality is, um, just just as I said, that they're I'm an equal member, and they're focused. Uh, or or they the, my my input is is equally welcome on every level. There is a degree of sort of like you know, am I going to fight for this idea? I mean, there's a producer who's kind of I guess in charge. You know, he's producing. Then there's. Flea and Anthony, who have been in this band since I was four years old, right. and then Chad, you know, has been in there for 25 years. Am I going to fight for this idea? Like, where's my place in this? It's my own, you know, kind of inner dialogue about certain things. Right. And I guess when it comes to certain uh, decisions when you're making a record, I mean, I just kind of feel that I should Speak step it. back. You know, right. I mean, I can't. But but that's what I said. Right. If if we're working with a producer and this person is new to the environment and not in the band, I start going, wait, but why am I subjugating my opinion to this yeah. person and what the, the the producer? But what does that? Because you have your own musical vision. Now, uh, let me because I know we're running out of time. So let me just cover a couple of other topics here. Um, and we can go over to. I don't mind. <laughs> thank you. Um, Bicycle thief. You you toured and opened for the Red Hot Chili Peppers. So. Talk to me about that dynamic. When you first got that tour, you were first, you know, you're opening for this massive band in the early 2000s. Uh, what was that like? And then now, of course, now you're in the band. Is there sort of a surreal moment where you just go, "What the hell happened here?" Yeah, I mean, I have that. I have that every day. I mean, I have that so often. What the hell happened here? I can't. Uh, like I said, I don't. I don't know what happened. I. I feel like just the other day I was. I was learning how to play, and I and I. You know, was opening for them. I mean, that was so exciting at the time. I mean, just being in t in a van and touring and not being at home working at a record store or whatever I yeah. was doing. I mean, I just this is it's kind of uh, it's it, it's surreal. I mean, that, that's really the yeah. word for it. And I'm also interested in some of the artists you've you've worked with because you've done a tour with Beck, P.J. Harvey, Niles Barkley. Some might qualify them as being eccentric or on the fringe. And Red Hot Chili. You know, they're, they're, they 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 sort of became the mainstream, but they weren't when they started. Uh, talk to me about those different bands, especially Beck. I mean, he's he's a very interesting character. Well, well maybe character is not the right word. Very interesting guy. Um, what was that like working with Beck and and then of course PJ Harvey because they're they're just very unique in what they do. Yeah, I mean, they're they're just they're two great songwriters, and you know they um they, they were. It was an honor to play with both of them, and I again couldn't believe that I was doing it. I was whatever I was, 22, 23, 24, and just sort of learning in a lot of ways how to play guitar. I mean, I still thought of myself as a drummer in a lot of ways. Um, yeah. But yeah, I just you know I <clears throat> I think um, uh, playing playing on both of those tours were slightly different in, uh, yeah. in the sense that with Beck, it, the band was a little more contained. He was in the front. And um, you know we were there supporting him, and right. you would think with Polly the same thing. But that particular tour, she wanted it to be more like an actual band where everyone's sort of running around you know, and has had, a spotlight, right? Yeah. So uh, that was that was you know I just kind of did what I would naturally do if it was my band, and and um, learned a lot and learned 
you know, I, yeah, it was a, it was a it was a wonderful time. Both experiences were wonderful. The Beck tour, now that, you know, now that time's gone by, was really all said and done about two and a half months. Right. So, but I mean, but some still, of my some of my closest friends. You know, I'm a loser. Baby is one of those songs that you just sort of hear playing in your head for yeah. you know, <laughs> twenty it, years, right? Our, our current front of house uh, sound guy works with Beck uh, a lot, and so I've been talking about Beck a lot with him and. And I became friends with a guy called Greg Kirsten, who's become one of the biggest producers in the world you know, at, on that tour. One of my, my closest friends, Steve McDonald, I met on that tour. So, I mean, the, the, um, that tour actually had, I, had, uh, I had dinner with uh, the guy who mixed Front of House on that tour the other day. So, I mean, those kind of things like uh, friendships and relationships that stay with you. I mean, that tour in particular. Yeah, my, my guitar, my guitar tech Ian, uh, I met on the PJ Harvey tour. I mean, we did that tour together. So I mean, you know, pick up little pieces all over the place. Um, not to cut you off, but uh, I'm trying to get our time and oh, respect yeah, everything. Uh, Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're inducted, and you look at some of the people that aren't: Rob Halford, or Judas Priest, Bruce Dickinson of Iron Maiden, you know, the Motley Crue guys, all these bands that have had these. Ela- and you're in there, and I, and, and I firmly believe that you should be there. Anybody who's helped the band move forward, whether it's Kiss or whatever, they should all move forward. Um, what was that like for you, though? Because you look around and you go, hmm, you know, guys from Styx aren't in here. Guys from Moody Blues aren't here. And look, here I am. Um, the Cure didn't the make cure. it in the year I, I did. Right, yeah. right, you know. So. But I, I, I choose to, to, I don't even think of it. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, because there's no, there's no rational um, justification for... You know, certain people not being in, and me being in, or you know, it's it's you, you'll you'll grow a tail and chase it all your life before <laughs> you come up with any uh, you know sensible answers about any of that stuff. Yeah, and and by the way, and I, I certainly didn't mean to to put down the fact that you're in there. I think you should be. I oh, know. Well, I mean, you, I mean, you no, look at the guys honesty. in Pearl. I mean, the Pearl Jam one is the one that's sort of bizarre because you've had all these guys that have helped out. Yeah, and they're not there. Yeah, of course. I mean, yeah. Jack like, Irons. Well, yeah. I mean, I mean that, that's a whole long conversation. I, mean, I think it's ridiculous. I mean, yeah. th- there were rules that may have been invented to deal with the Chili Peppers induction that didn't now apply a couple of years later with Pearl Jam. But if they had applied, would have seen Jack enter twice, which I thought was bad. I mean, really, you know, the Hall of Fame is a, it's a, it's a museum, basically. I mean, I don't know how, what a Hall of Fame means. Uh, you know, the reason I'm in there is a technicality. It's a loophole. It's a weird thing. I mean, it has no... It has no it's, it's, yeah, it's, and it's not it's, to be disparaging. It's, it's just, it's just. Yeah, but it really means nothing. It's like you know, I, I, if I was to go around believing that I did anything worthy of being in a Hall of Fame, then I, I really. <laughs> you don't I have really a Hall worry. of Fame T-shirt at home no, with your name. I, no, my, my parents have a little trophy on their mantelpiece, but you know, I, it, it's more of a conversational piece than anything. I mean, I and I'm grateful. I mean, like my standard answer about it is the fact that I'm just every day I'm honored to be flea. Anthony and Chad's friend. Yeah. I mean, that's what that's the allows, greatest. That's what allows me to be in this band. That's what allows this band to work. And timing is what it is, and their career, and my age being, you know, making me the young, youngest person in there. All those things are secondary. The real honor and the real accomplishment is it's, being their friend and being on that stage tonight and just playing for fans. Yeah, well, and that's but it all comes through being, yeah. you know, in the right place and the right time to meet them and be a good enough person, if I may, you know, say something kind about myself, which is rare, uh, you know, just to. Be someone that they consider a friend. I mean, that's all that I could ever, you know, be proud of. I yeah. mean, the Hall of Fame 
is, is nothing compared to the fact that, you know, Flea and I will text about basketball or, you know, you know, Chad yeah. let me stay at his house, you know, in, <laughs> in New York, you know, like these things, these are this, the fact that I'm, you know, friends with them is really the true honor. Um, and I don't want to bring the, the, the interview on a down point, but uh, we all know Chris Cornell passed away and you've gone on stage and paid tribute to him, uh, you know, covering his song. Why was that important for you to do that, and, and what did he mean to you? Because he certainly meant a lot to a lot of people. Yeah. Um, and I don't want to get everybody sad here, but, I mean, it's... it's yeah, he, it's, uh, he, he was... Um, it's unique and special. Yeah, and just really... I mean, I sat on the floor with the lights out, listening to that song, Seasons, that I yep. played, you know, t- 25 times in a row when I was 12 years old or whatever it was, whenever it came out. I mean, I... He was a, a big part of my my young life. You yeah. know, just that his that band, his songwriting. You know, I, I always felt that there was a sophistication to his his songwriting that was, you know, unlike lots of people that you saw. And um, you know, I his death just seems so surprising to everybody. I mean, I. It's uh, I, I can't comment about it obviously because I didn't know the guy and I didn't I don't certainly. But, don't but that's know the thing about the power of music. We feel that we know these people. I mean, you, you could look back and in my case, I'm a little older. And you look back and you think, you know, Rob Halford's my best friend, but no, he's not. But you just get that sense right through the music. It's, it's a yeah, powerful well, thing. Yeah. Well, I mean, well, the funny thing is, I mean, that, well, exactly t- to that point. I mean, I grew up listening to these people who I now am considered peers of, you know, right. somewhat because I play in this band and I. Right. Um, but but I there are certain people that I whose path I never crossed and. Um, you know, he's one of them. I rode in an elevator with him once, but I just <laughs> I feel like I feel like um, you know he. It, if I think about his death too much, I get so sad because... I well, just, I don't want to think about it. We should celebrate his life because that's what you're doing by playing his song. Yeah. And, and, and well, it keeps I the just, spirit you know, alive. I hope, I, hope, I hope beyond hope that his, um, that his life gave him more enjoyment than not. You know, I guess, you know, I guess it's hard to measure, but... Well, he certainly left a legacy for the rest of us to keep <clears throat> enjoying and keep giving us, yeah. you know... Um, listen, we're, we're we're way over time, so I, thank you for everything. Oh, yeah, it, it was a, a great pleasure, and uh, you can you can carry on if you have a couple more questions. I don't mind. I mean, they just kicked it. Well, I, I I do want to just get quickly back to it to Dot Hacker because we didn't really sort of we sort of I, we cut you off at the past there. But um, what is sort of the the future of Dot Hacker? Do we, is that something that you're going to continue doing on the side and, and try to establish as your own? And I know the word's horrible brand. Or is it something that you just sort of, I want to have a few minutes, I'll, I'll just toss well, something together. Well, it was intended to be my main focus for a while, because I spent sort of my 20s doing what you mentioned earlier, Beck and PJ Harvey, right. and then Gnarls Barkley, which were all, I played with this great band Sparks, too. I mean, yep. I, I sort of was and always lucky. Thief, yeah. yeah, I was always lucky in the sense that I never did anything that I didn't like. I never had to take a job, quote-unquote, and tour with someone that I didn't respect and admire and look up to. So, but... One thing after another, one thing led to another, and before you knew it, ten years disappeared. So I found myself sort of on tour with you know, Norris Barkley, maybe in the latter part of the last decade, and I, I sort of thought, wait, oh my god! I, I remember just yesterday, I, I had always dreamed of putting a band together with friends, and it never happened. And I, I think I allowed myself to get a little unhealthy and unhappy and destructive, and at times because of that 
reality because I was now 30 something early 30s and I had never done what I had set out to do as a teenager or whatever you know and I was just sort of looking at my life and going oops how you know if you let it disappear like it just did then you'll be dead soon (laughs) and um so but you know through Norris Barkley and I met you know Clint Walsh and and then through him I met Eric the drummer and Jonathan Hischke I'd met a couple years earlier um, and I just thought that this foursome seemed like a great band and I you know just it just happened really fast and and but we were just sort of getting to know each other musically and kind of slowly becoming a thing and it was really exciting but you know reality is what it is and people's um, people's time is a little limited when you get older I guess you can't you can't devote as much time and people were always sort of dipping in and out going on tour and doing this and that and then you know but but we kept it together and we were working and then I got called to, to join do this, this band which right. is you know the, something that a little I, bit of guilt though you, you go oh I'm gonna leave my buddies behind or you go like hey well, dude that's the well, game I right didn't, <laughs> I, I didn't so much feel guilty I, it was more just you know I, like it's moving forward and you're like, oh, now i got to put it on pause. It's yeah, like, but it already had been put on pause that already. But I mean, ma- mainly, you know, it's a double-edged sword because this band is a, a blessing and an amazing experience and I love every minute of it. And it's also helped Dot Hacker exist because, you know, I don't know if those guys would be into getting in a van and going and pounding the pavement right. as you are when you're a teenager. But, you know, we have somehow been able to make as many records as we would if we were, you know, we're on a normal trajectory, a normal schedule, right. we just don't tour. That's the problem. Right. So, you know, we but we have three records now, and 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 of course, being in this band gives you interest from fans that you might not have had. Yeah, so, you, you know, know there's it, a couple it, people that know. It. Yeah, it's it's funny. It's a funny band. I mean, they're but like I said earlier, they're they're four, three of my dearest friends. So, you know, anytime there's time in the past, that's how I've spent it. You know, the minute the minute I'm off with them. You know, the minute I have a second, I, I try and get those guys together, um, and I'm sure I'm sure that'll happen again. I have no, I have no, we have no plans at the moment, but you know, this this tour is almost done, and you know, no, I, time I mean, to to rev up that engine. But yeah. uh, you know, but you know, thank you for your time. We're way way over, oh, yeah, and, and no, I'm, no. I'm sure other folks. You might have to actually edit now. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the editing's fine. Yeah, I didn't even get to the Fender Stratocaster. That was uh, your instrument of choice. Download new episodes of Rock Talk with Mitch LaFawn every Monday at Podcast One and on the Podcast One app, or you can subscribe at iTunes. And don't forget to rate, review, and share. President Trump denies it. I'm Rita Foley with an AP News Minute. President Trump denies on Twitter using vulgar language when questioning why the U.S. would accept more immigrants from Haiti and African nations. 17 dead, 43 missing in Southern California after Tuesday's heavy rain and devastating mudslides. Santa Barbara County Sheriff Bill Brown is asking people to evacuate some areas so search and rescue crews can do their jobs. It is seriously impacting the ability of search and rescue, public works, other first responders and repair crews to clear roadways and to engage in search and rescue repair and damage assessment operations. Missouri Governor and former Navy SEAL Eric Greitens is now under investigation after acknowledging an extramarital affair but denying anything more, including accusations that he tried to blackmail the woman into keeping quiet. I'm Rita Foley.